Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now, I'm getting towards the end of my discussion of 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 7. Got a few more points to make, so I want to go back and read the passage. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So we've already talked about the errors of verse 3, the Gnosticism of verse 4, and the focus on specific knowledge that was esoteric and disunifying. In verse 4, he says it leads to controversial speculations. Verse 6, he refers to it as meaningless talk. Verse 7 talks about them being ignorant and confident. Terrible combination there. But we wanted to talk a little more about verse 5, which is sandwiched in the middle and is meant to be what the gospel brings to the table that the false teachers were, in essence, opposing. The goal of this command, in opposition to the counterfeits, is motivated by love. John 13, 35 comes to mind here. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If the doctrines we're teaching don't lead to love, then we've got it wrong. Which comes from a pure heart is Paul's next phrase. So here we need sincerity and no hypocrisy. If insincerity and hypocrisy are in play, again, that's not a good sign. And then finally, a good conscience and based on a sincere faith. Again, they were probably trying to get too much emphasis on knowledge. And there are just some things we have to take on faith. It's important to build knowledge where we can, but there are some things that are simply beyond us. We might apprehend them without comprehending them. So we have the selfish motives of the false teachers and false teachings revealed by their obstruction of love and faith. And so he says, look at the fruit, basically, to see what is false and what is true. Last point to make here, and this is a theme we'll develop throughout our study of First and Second Timothy, is that Timothy is famous for his timidity. And so if you think about how difficult it would be for him to confront this sort of thing, especially in the face of their confident ignorance, and what's required to do this well? Well, first to know the truth to know what's major and what's minor, and then the Spirit-given strength and grace to deal with it appropriately. Both wisdom and courage are what Timothy needs to handle this difficult task. All right, let's move on to verses 8 through 11. 
We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. First, notice his use of we know in verses 8 and 9, and that's in contrast to verse 7, that they do not know their ignorance. So the true knowledge that Paul is talking about versus the false and prideful ignorance of the false teachers. Verse 8, his argument here, the law is good if one uses it properly, and so that points to possible distortions that it might be used improperly whether intentional or not. We talked about this before. You can make errors out of a good conscience and still be wrong, but the false teachers are coming at it from a different angle. Paul here is finding a necessary balance between law and other things. The law still matters, but we are saved by grace. What is the purpose of the law? That's what Paul is working through. The law is not sufficient. That's called legalism with respect to either justification or sanctification. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot earn the love of God or the Holy Spirit living within us. The law is not sufficient. It's important, but not sufficient. Second, the law should not be selective. We should not be looking at the moral law as something that we're going through a cafeteria. This is not a cultural thing where we just pick up a handful of things that the, the culture is good with. We're not fans of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. We're not looking for loopholes and trying to take advantage. In fact, that's just erroneous in the first place. A good and great God who gives us the law, it's for our good. But the law is not superfluous either. Think of Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Or consider Paul in Galatians 3.21. Is the law therefore opposite to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Or as he writes in Romans 13, verses 9 and 10, that love is the fulfillment of the law. It's an indication of how we love people. So it can be out of balance. It can be distorted, but it is certainly not garbage. Law has a purpose, and Paul is working through that argument much as he does in Romans and Galatians. Now, what is the role of law? Well, it certainly has a political and civil function to restrain evil and to promote order. He will revisit that in the beginning of chapter 2. Romans 13, 1 through 5 is probably the most well-developed expression of this argument. But at the end of the day, this is quite limited. It's only dealing with external behaviors rather than the internal heart of the matter. And so it provides a deterrent, but it does nothing to change the heart. Second, the role of the law is spiritual. It lessens self-righteousness, convicts us, and pushes us toward God. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Romans 7, 7, and 8, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But again, we only know that through the law, that we are sinners in the first place. Galatians 3.24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. The law aims to change the heart, but is not very good at it, other than convicting and pushing us to God. The law and the gospel have the same moral standards, but in terms of salvation, the law condemns and the gospel justifies. So the law is meant to point us and others to God. And related to this, the law has some use as an instructional tool. It can be a teacher for the church and or society. Again, works to change the internals and the externals, but quite limited. It's only through the gospel and the empowerment of the Spirit that we have any hope of pushing back against the immorality that the law convicts us of. Verse 9 continues the theme, law is not made for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. First of all, spiritually, the righteous don't see their need for the law. They're under grace. But with respect to the unrighteous, John Stott says all law is designed for those whose natural tendency is not to keep it, but to break it. If you're aiming to break the law, then you need to know what the law is. If the righteous don't do the right thing, at least they're aiming to do the right thing. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul rattles off a list. Lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly, sinful, the unholy, and irreligious, good general list. Barclay describes this as a list of particularly rough Greek words. And then it gets more specific. Those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers, or fornicators, and those who practice homosexuality. The Greek term here combines male with bed or lying down. Then he mentions slave traders or kidnappers. The term can be translated either way. And liars and perjurers. He seems to go from general to specific, and if you get a little creative, you can see how all of these are loosely based on the first nine commandments. Liar and perjurer is also used in the two lists of sinners in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's interesting that the 10th commandment does not make an appearance if this is correct. Coveting is what Jesus uses with the rich young ruler and what Paul uses in Romans 7, 7, and 8 to fully convict us that whatever we think of the first nine commandments, we're all guilty of the tenth. But maybe that's how Paul intends liars and perjurers in this list. All of us are liars to some extent. Great passage here to keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
the non-Christian apparently has an identity as a sinner and a particular type of sinner. But once we have accepted the grace of God, we were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We're given a new name, washed, sanctified, justified. Barclay reflects on the list and notes how difficult it would have been to be a Christian, particularly a young Christian, in the midst of this culture. You've got the persecution and you've got the culture which has terrible standards. Barclay says this list of sins is a description of the world in which the early Christians lived and moved and had their being. Nothing shows us so well how the church was a little island of purity in a vicious world. We talk about it being hard to be a Christian in modern civilization. We have only to read a passage like this to see how infinitely harder it must have been in the circumstances in which the church first began. But Paul's not done. As he goes through verse 10 into verse 11, he says, Whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So whatever else it indicates that this is not meant to be an exhaustive list Again, I think he's saying, let's do a fruit check here. What works, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, is going to be on this list if you want to extend the list further. That certainly picks up the 10th commandment of covenanting, but really anything else that gets in the way of both the spirit and the letter of the law. Barclay describes this list as things that are health-giving, glorious from God and through man. So verse 11 is beautiful. The glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so verse 11 also answers the question, what's the point of the law? It points us to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me as we spread it to other people. Barclay says the Christian's dynamic comes from the fact that he knows sin is not only breaking God's law, but also breaking his heart. It is not the law of God, but the love of God, which constrains us. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we got through 1 Timothy 1.11, and that takes us to verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Out of the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John Stott observes that this is an extremely personal statement in verses 13 through 16, which is bookended by two bursts of praise quite naturally from Paul's perspective in verses 12 and 17, directing the glory for his life where it needs to be. So in verse 12, Paul expresses thanks to Christ, given the reality of what's going to come in verses 13 through 16, and for giving me inner strength. Matthew Henry says, those whom God puts into the ministry, he fits for it. John Stott, the appointment would have been inconceivable without the equipment. God gives us things to do and equips us for those things. It is by God's provision, 
but also our participation. Later in verse 12, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Matthew Henry says it's not only ability, but fidelity. Barclay uses four verbs to describe what Paul's talking about here, that he was chosen, trusted, appointed, and empowered. And then into his personal statement, all this is despite his pre-Christian background, which is out of ignorance, as he notes in verse 13. If you go back to verse 7, he had talked about his current opponents and the troublemakers in Ephesus as also ignorant. And so you see from Paul here what I would describe as a firm empathy, his empathy for those who are ignorant, but he's not going to let it roll. He's going to take a stand against that because it does so much damage. And of course, Paul's life itself is a terrific testimony to the damage that ignorance can cause. He said he was a blasphemer, both personally and in forcing others to do so, forcing people to recant their testimonies for Jesus, trying to intimidate them and persecute them. He also says he was a persecutor of the church. We see this in his own testimony in Acts 9 and 26 in the text that Luke records this in Acts 8.3. Paul also uses Galatians 1.13 to accuse himself of this crime. He was a persecutor of the church and thus of Christ. Acts 9.4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not why do you persecute the church, but Jesus saying, from the skies, why do you persecute me? And a violent man. In a nutshell, a rough but accurate, quick depiction that covered his words, his deeds, and his thoughts. Again, remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, that the behavior he exhibited in his pre-Christian life was his identity, that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. But after Jesus, he was washed, saved, justified, and so on. He becomes a believer, but he was still someone who had committed those sins, and he still commits sins. Notice the worst of sinners is his reference to himself in verse 15. But despite all that, because of all that, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here is much more colorful. That's translated merely abundantly in the NIV. It literally means super abundantly. It's got the prefix hyper in front of the word. And so the picture here is of a river at flood stage bursting its banks. Stott says, what the river of grace brought with it, however, was not devastation, but blessing. The overflow was not destruction, but glory, blessing, and grace. And so that leads to the second half of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world, John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and then Paul says, of whom I am the worst. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I have persecuted the church of God. And Ephesians 3, 8, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ especially in light of the list of sins, it's remarkable that Christ has called him to this mission. But notice that he says, I am the worst, not just past tense, but present. 
It's not I was, it's I am. And the worst, and you might think, well, this is hyperbole, Paul. Do you really mean this? Are you just exaggerating for effect? Well, certainly in his past, it was not the case. It's hard to imagine someone who was a bigger sinner uh, in the divine economy than Paul, seemingly beyond hope, but not in the divine economy. He could still be rescued by the grace of God. Stott says Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. I think we also see here that in present terms, Paul is allergic to comparisons and judgment of others. Think of Luke 18, 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and just does not want to get caught in self-righteousness. Being remarkably sobered by the extent of our own sin and God's wrath towards sin And the flip side is that the more I understand this and the more hyper is the grace of God. Romans 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or maybe most broadly for Paul and for us, what role is there in our testimony for self-righteousness? It has nothing to do with us. It is the grace of God. Barclay says it was bound to keep Paul from pride, keep his gratitude aflame, constantly urge greater effort, and bound to be an encouragement to others. With respect to effort, Barclay also says, it is quite true that a man can never earn the approval of God or deserve his love, but it is also true that he can never stop trying to do something to show how much he appreciates the love and the mercy which made him what he is. Whenever we love anyone, we cannot help trying always to demonstrate our love. So what a great quote on such an important distinction. We can never earn the approval of God or deserve his love, but we should never stop trying to do something to show how much we love him in response. Of course, all of this is ironic because today we see him as such a great hero of the faith, and yet he saw himself as the worst of sinners. And he also at the same time so aggressively claimed the mantle of apostleship, again, not out of pride, but to defend the gospel that he was called to preach. And he also said that repeatedly they should follow his example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Philippians 3.17, 2 Thessalonians 3.7. So you have this really interesting tension about him saying, I'm the worst of sinners, but yet follow my example. He knew that God was using him to do great things, that he had yielded his life in faith to walk with the Lord and follow the commission he was given, but he also at the same time saw himself as the worst of sinners. Matthew Henry says, in fact, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road has proved to be just that. It remains a standing source of hope to otherwise hopeless cases. Anyone can come to Christ if Paul could. Matthew Henry, again, he was converted and obtained mercy for the sake of others as well as of himself. He was a pattern to others. But he is only an example. There are many such examples in the scriptures. Think about Moses, David, and Saul as murderers. David, Solomon, Samson, the woman caught in adultery, Judah in Genesis 38, the Samaritan woman in John 5, Rahab in Joshua 2. The list just goes on and on. They're all examples of the amazing grace of God despite being the worst of sinners. So don't relax the tension here. The worst of sinners, the greatness of God's grace, but yet Paul can say, follow my example. And so Paul can say in verse 13 and 16, I was shown mercy... And the providential byproduct of that in verse 16 is that so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. 
Lord, I pray that we would avoid self-righteousness, that we would focus on our sin, but ultimately on the greatness of your grace. And for those around us who seem so hopeless, seem so far away from the kingdom, that we look at Paul's example and recognize that they're only one step away. If they'll embrace the grace of God, they can be in the goodness and greatness of your kingdom. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in the middle of the discussion of 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Got through quite a bit of it in the last segment, but there's more to do. So let me read the passage again. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we talked about, verses 12 and 17 are praise, and that's bookending on either side, the focus of the passage in verses 13 through 16, about how sinful Paul was and therefore how great the grace of God was, not only in saving him, but then appointing him as a messenger, an apostle, and the chief purveyor of the gospel to the Gentiles. So I want to focus on a few other phrases on our way out the door on this passage. First, verses 13 and 16, twice he says, I was shown mercy. And the need for mercy, the necessary condition for that in verse 13, is that because Paul had acted in ignorance, which is pretty ironic given his amazing knowledge within Judaism and his unbelief. Now, of course, you can have knowledge without wisdom. You can be knowledgeable about certain things and a complete moron about other things. And that's what Paul was. He was knowledgeable, but full of pride. And his knowledge was quite limited and greatly in error on some key things. In Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And then Hebrews 5, 2, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. The Hebrews 10 passage is saying, look, if you know, then what sacrifice for sin is left? You already know. You're refusing something that you already presumably understand. And then Hebrews 5, 2, the idea that God's going to deal differently with those who are ignorant. And that's the position Paul was in. Despite all the great sins he was committing, it was ultimately done out of ignorance. If it's on purpose, Hebrews 10 and other passages describe it as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, think about the differences between premeditated and unintentional sins. They're both missing the mark, but obviously premeditated is a different ball of wax. Sin and unbelief are products of ignorance and faithlessness by definition. It's some combination of those that get us into trouble. And it's less of a crime to do it out of ignorance, but it is still a sin. To transgress or rebel means to know what you are doing and still doing it versus the idea of missing the mark. You're aiming at something you don't even quite know what you're aiming at and you fail to hit the target. Those are different. They're both sins, but they're different. 
Jesus in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Or think about Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Or Acts 3, verses 17 and 19, Now fellow Israelites, and know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. And then verse 19, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So you're in ignorance, and that's excusable at some level, but you still need to repent and turn to God so that those sins may be wiped out. So for Paul and for us, the necessary condition is our sin, and that leads to God's mercy and grace, which we can accept. Paul talks about that in verse 16. The providential byproduct of all of this, all of Paul's sin, is so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So the providential byproduct here is that Paul's life then oddly becomes a great trophy of God's grace. On the unlimited patience of God, Matthew Henry says it was an instance of the long-suffering of Christ that he would bear so much with one who had been so provoking. And on the idea that God might display, and so that this might happen, in a sense, a weird sense, it's Paul's provision within God's provision of grace. Paul had to participate at some terrible level so that he could become a trophy of God's grace. It doesn't excuse the sin, it doesn't promote the sin, but that's the way grace works. Even when we commit terrible sins, the grace of God still covers it, and we become oddly trophies of God's amazing grace. John Stott says it was this experience of Christ's grace, mercy, and patience which underlay Paul's evangelistic enthusiasm. Nobody can share the gospel with passion and power today who has not had a comparably personal experience of Christ. And then that leads to his summary praise statement in verse 17. He says it's to the king eternal, literally of the ages, same language used in Daniel 7.13 and Revelation 15.3. God is beyond time. God is immortal. He's beyond death. He's invisible. That explained his ignorance. Failing to see God before and then seeing clearly afterwards is the reason for his conversion. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we don't get to see God directly, but we see him through Jesus and we see him through the love of other believers today. And the result of this is Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And that's what Paul had, ex- had experienced. That's what Paul had experienced, immeasurably more than he could have asked or imagined. The mercy and the great patience of God in dealing with such a sinner as Paul and such sinners as us. Paul continues in verse 17, he's the only God rather than idols. And then finally, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What he writes here in verse 17 is a natural, spontaneous response to what he's just written and the thoughts that he's having about the amazing grace and patience of a good and great God. Matthew Henry says, that grace which we have the comfort of, God must have the glory of. 
those who are sensible of their obligations to the mercy and grace of God will have their hearts enlarged in his praise. And if you don't find yourself praising or in gratitude for everyday life, or especially the mercies and the grace and the patience of God, then you don't understand your sin fully enough. Paul is a super sinner, if you will, and so it's easy in some sense for him to understand the goodness and greatness of God's grace, but the same should be true for all of us. If we don't find ourselves praising, joyful, content, gratitude, and so on, then we don't understand our sin, and we don't understand the grace of God. All right, now verses 18 through 20, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So here Paul starts into the guts of the letter, moving from his opening praise to this opening sobering charge to Timothy. Verse 18, it's an instruction. It takes us back to the word command back in verse 3. It's actually the same word in the Greek after this long digression. Verse 18 starts with the calling to Timothy from the Lord in keeping with the prophecies once made about Timothy. Along with Paul's reference to him as my son, this reminds him of their relationship and the circumstances of his calling and would serve to boost his confidence. Now, what prophecies is Paul talking about? Could be those directed at Timothy, perhaps related to Acts 13 or Acts 16, or at Paul to include Timothy on his missionary team, as is discussed in Acts 16. William Barclay argues that it might be a prophetic reference to his name, which means to honor God. You were named this from birth, now live it out. Then verses 18 into verse 19, following this instruction, would allow Timothy to fight the good fight. Literally, the word here is campaign. It's not just a single battle. And it's using two weapons, holding on to faith and a good conscience. In other words, living out an authentic life of integrity, trusting your judgment, again, under good conscience and formed by the Spirit. Notice here the combination of an objective faith, the faith, which is informed by the Spirit and the Word, and the idea of a subjective conscience, which is in line with that faith. In contrast, later in verse 19, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. And then Paul names names in verse 20, Hymenaeus and then Alexander. This is probably not the same Alexander as we read about in Acts 19.33. In any case, Paul hands them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Here he's alluding to the practice of excommunication. We see this in the letters from Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 13, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. And then Jesus lays out the process for this in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, we don't always think of it in these terms, but the church is meant as a sanctuary from the power of Satan. So when Paul uses that language, handing over to Satan, he's saying, kicked out of the church, they will be at Satan's mercy. And hopefully they will learn the lessons, face the consequences of that, and turn back to the Lord and to faithful community. 
So it's crucial that this is done with the proper attitude. 2 Thessalonians 3.15, yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. It's not to punish, it's not to crush people, it's to restore them, to bring them back into faithfulness and faithful community. Another example of this, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So once that repentance is there, don't keep egging it on. Bring them back into the community. Don't cause them excessive sorrow. And so a lot of times this is not done well in churches. It's not done at all, frankly, in many cases, or it's done poorly. And so Paul cautions against that in this passage and many others. Going back to Paul's praise in verse 17, if you think about what's at stake, the God that we worship, then we need to defend the integrity of the church. We need to make sure that believers are doing what they need to do. And if not, then we need to let them go so that they can hopefully find uh, a conscience, integrity, repentance, and then turn back to God and his church. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered the end of 1 Timothy 1. That takes us to chapter 2, and we will begin with verses 1 through 3. I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So first thing is look at the language of verse 1. He says, I urge you, same language of chapter 1, verse 3, and also first of all. So this is Paul's most important command, at least in this setting, rather than merely the first of a list of things to be considered. And so this underlines the importance of prayer and worship versus many other things. For Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, unity was his top thing. And I don't think we'd have Paul of Ephesians arguing with Paul of 1 Timothy. Obviously, both of those are primary consideration. But for here, uh, it is praise and worship and prayer that is the most important thing. Loving God is the greatest commandment, and worship is the only thing we'll do for eternity. And so it's important that we get it right. And the fact is also, as we tie this back to unity, if you're not doing unity properly, you're not going to be worshiping properly either. So worship and unity go on a list of first and primaries. Now, worship is an event and a lifestyle. We're used to thinking of it as an event, something you do on Sunday morning, for example, but really it's something you should do all the time, just like you're breathing, and prayer is like that as well. So let's look at what we have here. Verse 1, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. And then verse 2, he specifies kings and all those in authority. Now, Paul is using four different terms to describe similar things. Think of a Venn diagram approach here where there's overlap, but they're not completely the same thing either. They're distinct terms, but not sharply different. He's building emphasis in a poetic sort of way rather than seeing these things as particularly separate terms with different meanings. The language here is similar to Philippians 4.6, 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So a similar litany of nouns in that passage as well. Barclay says that the four here are to be distinguished as a sense of need, and the first one can be used of God or man. The second word is petition to God only. The third implies a level of intimacy, meeting with God. And the fourth, translated thanksgiving, is eucharistia, which is a Greek term you're probably familiar with, is often translated, or derivatives of it are translated as joy, thanks, grace, and gift. And he wants all of this extended to everyone. I think sometimes we only pray for ourselves or only pray for friends and family, but we're also to pray for those in the local church. Make sure that your prayer life is diversified, if you will. Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. A lot of the word at all in that passage and the same sort of thing here. But in particular, Paul calls them in verse 2 to pray for all those in authority. And there's a, a special emphasis on those in authority in human political government. Ezra 6.10, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Jeremiah 29.7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's a very similar language to the post-exile Israel and what they were supposed to pray about for their leadership. Now, what's the big deal here? Well, leaders, government, in the church, in business, whatever, their decisions bear so much weight. They have weighty responsibilities and decisions. They're able to cause a lot of justice and injustice. They face and impose difficulties and burdens on others. So there's just a lot at stake when it comes to leaders, and therefore we should pray for them. Hebrews 13, 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The writer of Hebrews, they're talking about church leaders, but at least to some extent, it extends to political leaders as well. James 3.1, again, speaking of believers and their leaders, not many of you should become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Certainly with respect to human government, it implies conditional obedience to authority. Romans 13.1 and 2, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, Paul's command, as well as the other writers of the New Testament, with respect to civil leaders, are especially amazing in light of few of them being Christians at the time, and specifically given Nero's rule and his treatment or mistreatment of Christians. It's amazing that this is the call to pray for their well-being. Barclay says emperors might be persecutors and those in authority might be determined to stamp out Christianity, but the Christian church never, even in the times of bitterest persecution, ceased to pray for them. So a couple things to say, especially in what can be difficult political times. You know, as I'm recording this, there's a lot of contention in American government these days. But before we criticize or advocate public policy, we are called to pray 
before we do that, this is the first priority. If you're not praying for your leaders, biblically, you cannot criticize them. Make sure you're being obedient to what the scriptures claim for you, especially as a believer, you know better. Make sure you're praying for your leaders. Now, if you're having trouble doing that, that's probably a good sign or a bad sign of idolatry towards politics. So just make sure you have your heart in the right place. Make sure you're praying for your enemies, and maybe that includes those in the other political party. The other side of this more positive angle is that praise and prayer is due for good government, bosses, and church leadership. Don't take those for granted. Give thanksgiving for those. Continue to pray for them that they would be guarded and that they would be strengthened. Good government is all too rare, so when you have it, give thanks for it and support it as you can, practically and with respect to prayer. Now, in verse 2, in a weird way, it's this sort of thing is self-serving. Paul writes here that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, that praying for the leaders is a way to accomplish this wonderful thing at the end of verse 2. Now, of course, for Paul, that's not going to be the case. He ends up being persecuted, but his hope is that if we have good leaders, that the result will be godliness and holiness, peaceful and quiet lives. Now, notice he's also talking about freedom from certain things. Peaceful and quiet implies domestic tranquility, both the absence of war and a lack of oppression. But then he talks about a freedom to. Freedom from is not much use unless it's used properly. And the freedom to do something here is godliness and holiness, speaking broadly to religious devotion to God and moral integrity with others. It's reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you. There's a sense in which you can't expect peace and quiet if you're not godly and holy. Romans 13, continuing in the same passage, verses 3 and 4, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, Paul there is obviously talking about government in its ideal form. Government often persecutes people, even to the point of death, Christian or not. But that is the ideal. And so it starts with verse 2. You have no shot at a peaceful and quiet life if you're not living in godliness and holiness. Barclay says these two great words don't translate well into English. They're far richer in the original Greek. The first word is eusebia, which means a reverence toward God and man, the kind of life that God wants us to lead. And the second word is semnos. Barclay cites Aristotle, who defined it as the average between subservience and arrogance. Quote, he never forgets the holiness of God or the dignity of men. The other angle here is that Everything from peaceful and quiet lives individually to the work of the church corporately is made easier by a well-functioning state. Peace leaves the church in a better position to fulfill its God-given responsibilities without hindrance. Order is preferable to chaos in this regard. Walvert and Zook says times of political and social upheaval are excellent times in which to die for Christ, but hard times in which to live for him. Think about when Jesus came in the Pax Romana, Roman dictatorship, but ultimately enforcing the peace in many ways. And so you've got the Roman roads, you've got the Pax Romana that allowed Christianity to spread so well. Or even think about Paul's experiences with Rome's success in this. He dealt with a lot of Jewish persecutors, but the stability, relatively speaking, of Roman government still allowed him to do so much more 
with his life. And this is frankly the duty of the state, and it's often not done well as government pursues other agendas, redistribution to cronies and the like. If it takes care of its first job, which is to preserve order, property rights, take care of people, protect them from foreigners, intruding, and so on, it's much easier for the church and individuals to live quiet and peaceful lives. The punchline then is in verse 3, this is good and pleases God. Now, whether he's referring to prayer in verses 1 and 2 and or the lives well lived later in verse 2, we know it's good and pleases God. Lord, help us to pray for our leaders, even when they're terrible, and help us to lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We thank you for your goodness and greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.